Greetings and welcome to all of you who are joining us from all over the beautiful planet we have. My name is Negin Krasani. I'm the founder of Be Infinite and your host today. Be Infinite offers a platform for online transformative learning to realign people with the wisdom of their heart, their inner balance, life purpose, and holistic health, which results in more fulfillment in all areas of their lives. We are here today to celebrate our home planet Earth. Today, more than 190 countries are engaged in celebrating this day, and it continues to grow as a worldwide phenomenon. Celebrating Earth Day is a conscious reminder of how precious our planet is and how important it is to protect and nourish it. In this session, our inspiring guests are the change makers who will enlighten and empower us with various ways to create a more conscious and harmonious community, globally speaking, and a vibrant and sustainable environment. Now, a little bit on how our session unfolds today. We start the session with a brief centering meditation and intention. Then we will open our panel discussion to know better our guests and to see what are their thoughts on how we can take care of our planet. We will also have time for your questions at the end. So as we go along, please feel free to send us your questions in the comments section of this session. We'll address them in the Q&A segment. Now, before we open our conversation, let's have a centering meditation and intention together. Please find your comfortable position in the chair and close your eyes. Let your body relax. Let your breathing become deep and slow. Move your attention to your heart. Take a deep breath in and out from the center of your chest. Let go of the outside world and rest for a moment in the warmth of your heart where you are connected with everyone and everything. Immerse yourself in this unity. From this place of connectedness and unity, let's have the intention that our session today will bring the highest learning for all of us. on how we can live with more understanding and compassion on earth in more conscious, gentle, and kind ways toward everyone and everything. With love and reverence for our environment, and all forms of life. Now, while still remaining centered in our heart, holding this intention, 
gently open your eyes. Now we are ready to start our conversation. Please join me in welcoming our guest, Dr. Ananya Rao, Senior Scientist at Green Kanha in Hyderabad, India, Antonio Lambe, founder of Terra Seiche in Portugal, Alexander Tinti, founder of Refugio Tinti in Costa Rica. Thank you for accepting our invitation and for joining us today. Thank you, Nadine. Wonderful. So let's dive in. My first question to all of you, and we go one, one by one, is that you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your journey. Ananya, would you like to start? Sure, Nagin. Thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to be here. It's really a privilege um, to introduce myself, especially to an audience which might not know much about India. I think I'm going to use a few slides, if you don't mind. I'll be sharing my screen. So the organization I work with is Heartfulness, and the greening part of it is called Forest by Heartfulness. I am Ananya. I have a PhD in climate science, but to go back to the beginning, I think this one sentence sums up my life. Change is the only constant. <laughs> There's always been something or the other happening and all our lives are similar, right? So, but education-wise, I changed 14 schools in 12 years owing to my father's transferable jobs. And this, essentially sums up my childhood where I was surrounded. My father's been a forest officer. So I, I grew up in the wilderness of India. So this was, this was a birthday celebration, my brother's birthday celebration with the elephants from the elephant camp, tame elephants, they're, they're not wild. But we did have a rescue baby elephant at home, which was a week old when she got home and the uh, human-animal conflict uh, made the herd leave her and then human imprinting happened, so she was attached to us. And But then slowly we got her into the elephant camp. So this is her uh, when she was a month or two old. <laughs> we could pick her up. So childhood was completely with rescue animals. We would uh, rescue the animals and either reintroduce them into the wild or take them to the zoos if they cannot survive by themselves. So we had a wide range of animals. So mostly been in the jungles, on top of trees, and have experienced cyclones, earthquakes, floods. India is not full of them, but then the post that my father was in, and just owing to that, I was exposed to all of these. Some of the ecosystems that I wanted to show, all the photographs are by me and from the uh, wild ecosystems of India. These are wetland ecosystems, uh, elephants. Those are the pictures that are not of good clarity are from the SLR, not the DSLR. Uh, so rhinoceros, variety of birds, flowers. I'm sorry, I'm going a little fast. <laughs> Come back to it in a bit. So a variety of ecosystems, like I mentioned, deciduous forests, dry deciduous forests, riparian ecosystems grassland ecosystems, coastal mangroves, and of course the Himalayas, which I'm sure most of you would have heard about, Himalayan ecosystems. 
they say if there is a heaven on earth it is in the himalayas <laughs> and um, that's after switzerland okay <laughs> and a variety of uh, fauna as well so we have 228 species of amphibians for 84 species of reptiles variety of birds some of them are critically endangered we have the Royal Bengal tiger, which is on the endangered list as well. Asiatic lion, which not many people know about. Leopard, sloth bears, a goat. The one on the left is the only ape that is found in India. It's called the Hulok gibbon. Uh, right is the lion-tailed macaque. It's a narrow endemic species. And with all this, the land absorbs pressure from 51.2 of livestock. It's nothing short of a miracle that the country is still a mega, mega biodiversity country. And so growing up in such an environment, it was very easy for me to feel a connect and also feel like I need to do something about it. I need to contribute in some way or the other. But um, unfortunately in India, you know, this high-end uh, colleges don't have an undergraduate degree in, say, ecology. Um, so my parents insisted that I finish my graduation. And so I did my electrical and electronic engineering. Uh, and then after engineering, I went back to my passion and uh, tried to see how I can fit into doing something about ecology, about the environment, and finish my PhD from the Center for Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences in Climate Science and Terrestrial Carbon uh, in 2019. And that's when I started working in the outskirts of Hyderabad at this place called Kana Shantivanam, which is the world headquarters for, for heartfulness. So that's about me as an introduction. Thank you. Thank you, Anania. Very, very interesting. Thank you for sharing all that. So, Antonio, would you like to share about your journey? Okay, I'm not sure if I, if I want to share very much after that hard act to follow of Ananya. Uh, boy, it was, it was really beautiful and moving. Ananya, congratulations. I hope you'll send me some of those photographs someday, if not available online. My case is relatively humdrum, hum, humdrum I would say. Uh, my background is actually a birth in Argentina, uh, secondary school in England, uh, universities in the States. Um, but throughout all of that, I have had an interest in nature, in wildlife. I spent hours as a little boy watching spiders, making spider webs and ants and lots of other things. Um, so I've always had that interest in my mind. It has been helped by the fact that my mother was an avid gardener. And I eventually started to get very serious about plants and how they grow and what they need and what they tell us about the planet, uh, what is needed for the planet's health, health on which our own health, of course, depends. Um, ultimately, I chose architecture as my field and then landscaping because of my love of plants and my appreciation of design with plants, as well as one can design with, say, bricks or timber and so on. Um, and that led me to volunteer at the United Nations just before the Earth Summit in Rio in 92. And that proved an epiphany. I, I decided to leave architecture, to leave landscaping, and to, to devote myself to environmental advocacy. And I was fortunate to, to be given a, a plum job with the Earth Council, which was an NGO or organization that was set up 
by the Secretary General of the, the conference in San Jose in, in Costa Rica. And that got me uh, more and more involved in just what I really wanted to do. And for the first time in my life, at that time I was in my perhaps 30s, I realized that this was what I really wanted to do. I could hardly sleep at night because I wanted to get up at five in the morning to get on with other ideas. Um, but at any rate, I discovered what I wanted to do. And that led me back to the UN where I represented this group for a while. And then I um, eventually got involved in more in individual activities, ultimately leading to my desire to buy a piece of land somewhere and restore it. I thought that would be the most concrete way in which I could leave Leave, leave a mark. I think throughout this, I have wanted to feel that wherever I've been, things have got a little better rather than worse because I went by. Um, and that's what I'm now doing with two major dreams. Uh, that's not a hyperbole. They really are dreams. One is of a basin in southern Portugal, which was once um, a very special place and is still considered of highest priority in terms of biodiversity conservation in the south of the country. And then um, at, at the same time, I was also looking for land in the neotropics, South America and Central America, where I could do something similar um, and watch what I've seen here in my own home in Portugal, how a landscape can, in the most arduous of conditions, be transformed with a lot of care, a lot of patience, a lot of water in this case, and um, a lot of resistance to the fact that a lot of stuff dies. But little by little, one can transform and restore a place. And that's what I wanted to do both in the Seychelles and also in this valley, in this, this area in central in, in Costa Rica, which is lucky to be and privileged by having two existing preserves um, next to it. So we have, we're actually expanding an important protected area and we could ultimately be the first in a link to a national park, which is off to the east. Costa Rica is a wonderful country in many ways, and it has done a very good job of preserving something like 25% of its territory in, for its extraordinary biodiversity. It's a little speck of land in the world, on the face of the earth, but it has something like 5% of the world's biodiversity. So it, is really, it really is a treasure house. And anything you do in a place like that is going to make a difference. So that's my other dream. And we are now getting ready to uh, establish a series, I hope, of tests on different planting strategies to see what is most effective to restore the parts of this land, something like 106, 107 hectares, um, which is the most e effective strategy to restore a place. It's going to happen anyway, fortunately, because the damage is not irreversible. We had cattle on about half the land. It's now, uh, being, being, it's now recovering with alacrity because the soil is fertile, because the rains are fairly plentiful. And so it's been gratifying just to see what's happening. But my deep hope, and this is really a call for all of you, all of you out there, if you have any ideas of strategies um, in which, for example, there's, uh, there are several fairly well-known strategies that uh, one is the Miyawaki for urban areas. There are others that can be used to be as effective as possible and often economical as possible in restoring hectares of denuded land. Any ideas will be really welcomed from any of you, any of you out there who are listening. Uh, in any event, we will in the next few years be replanting the part that was cut down for cattle. And our hope is that the biodiversity will come back. And the biodiversity which could come back is really important. There are at least 20 species of highly endangered uh, creatures that could be, be could be benefited by the return of the forest. 
So that's my current dream and my future dream. And that I think is enough for now. Thank you very much, Antonio. Very inspiring. Thank you for sharing. So Alexander, we are eager to hear from you. Okay. Um, so I'm Alexander Tinti and I'm born in Austria and I lived in New York City and in Southeast Asia. And since 2016, I'm in Costa Rica where I founded and I'm running now an environmental conservation and education project. My whole life long, I was fascinated by two seemingly very different areas, natural sciences and the arts. But I perceive them as two sides of the same coin. Both are tools to better understand myself and the world around me, the arts from inside and science from outside. So at first I studied physics, mathematics and biology at the University of Vienna. And I will never forget my all-time favorite teacher, the Nobel laureate Konrad Lorenz, when he explained how ecosystems work and how we abuse them. He showed us how we are mindlessly exploiting finite resources, how we are polluting the air and waterways, how we are poisoning our soils with agrochemicals, and how we are creating an ever-growing mountain of waste which when I was young was not as obvious as it is today. And he continued to explain where all this is leading to, namely to the breakdown of our environment and especially how. It's like continuously blowing air into a balloon, he said. Initially, and for the longest time, we don't notice too much. The balloon is just getting bigger and bigger. But then, not gradually, but all of a sudden, it explodes. And he predicted that around 2020, things will get out of hand, and the balloon will suddenly explode in the blink of an eye, signifying the breakdown of our environment as we know it. We were alarmed. We founded groups to protect the environment, but predictably, we were laughed at. That was in the 70s. However, not very focused in my youth, I changed my studies then to painting and sculpting, but only to eventually become a theater director and a stage designer for the first half of my life. This led me to New York City, where I lived for almost a decade. And life there was so exciting that I forgot a little bit the ticking time bomb Conrad Lawrence was planting into my heart. But then I moved to Asia. And during quite a turbulent and adventurous 20 years through Cambodia, Thailand, Bali, and Sri Lanka, the signs for the approaching exploding balloon grew more and more obvious. And my concern about the rampant destruction of our environment became so unsettling that I felt I had to do something. And I went back to study, and this time soil biology, permaculture, and ecology. And to make a long story short, when I felt ready 2016, I came to Costa Rica with the aim to put the summary of what I have learned and experienced in my life into practice and founded the Refugio Tinti, my project here. Thank you very much for sharing that inspiring journey with us, Alexander. So we go back to you, Anania. Um, would you like to share more about Green Kanha and what is it all about? 
really. I mean, after the two introductions from both of you, I feel like I'm just beginning. <laughs> I'm such a beginner. It's so your lives are so fulfilling already as it is. It's very inspirational, I must say. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so um, again, I'll I, I'll take the help of slides if you don't mind. I'll continue from where I am. So. Um, Right now, where I'm based is at the heart, uh, world headquarters for the Heartfulness Institute. It's called Kanha Shantiwanam. It's on the outskirts of Hyderabad, city of Hyderabad, 50 kilometers away from there. And we are a 1,500-acre campus. Uh, what you see here in the background is the meditation hall. So this campus hosts one of the largest meditation halls in the world. Uh, I think it is the largest it can... Uh, seat a capacity of 100,000 people. And just before the beginning of the pandemic, we had 100,000 people coming and meditating together in this hall. Um, and in a few days to come now, this time we are having 35,000 people coming and uh, meditating together. This is an aerial view from uh, at night of the meditation hall. We have comfortable accommodations, uh, free accommodation, dormitory accommodations, as well as uh, if you are on a spiritual quest but require luxury there's a four-star hotel as well and there's kitchen and dining mega kitchens which can uh, serve food for 50,000 people at a notice of uh, three hours we have a canteen an italian restaurant <laughs> which was run by italians uh, just before the pandemic hit we have wood fired pizzas there we have a wellness center which integrates um, other systems of medicines apart from allopathy. So we have Ayurveda, Yunani, acupuncture, acupressure, all of that. We have a gym, we have a, a school called the Heartfulness Learning Center. Kids are out in the open learning in the organic farms that we have. And we have a pottery studio. And so the campus itself is moving towards sustainability. So we are into greening in a large way. Uh, and what I'm presenting today is the efforts of the entire team here, which is the volunteer-based team. Um, and for the past six years, since the acquisition of this barren land, we have tried to green this 1,200 acres uh, with emphasis on native uh, indigenous species of trees and plants. And uh, I'm happy to inform that now we are an ex situ conservation center for rare and endangered species on the verge of extinction, uh, which I will get to uh, maybe in a bit or uh, I can, shall I continue Negin with the work? Yeah, you can continue. Okay, so when we got here, this was how the place looked like. I mean, it was 1,200 acres of barren land. It was agricultural fallow land. Uh, so the soil was sandy loam and it's a semi-arid region as it is. So drought prone, hardly any water. And it is 48 degrees is the peak temperature that it goes to. And I was mentioning to uh, the panel that right now it's already reached 40 degrees. And that's why I can't let my hair down. <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, so when, I, when we came here, my father was here six years ago. And when I came to visit him, I was thinking, okay, if we're thinking about greening, we need to get maybe those large cactus that we see in the uh, Texas, you know, those Wild Wild West movies that would suit well for this kind of uh, uh, environment is what I thought. But then we began with the uh, water conservation efforts by making, uh, we have, we already had five ponds. We increased the capacity of these ponds. We built canals across the campus 
underground canals and overground canals so that every drop of water that fell on the ground was channeled into these uh, uh, reservoirs of water. And yes, initially we did use plastic, but right now we are making use of an ancient uh, Indian technology of using black cotton soil and leaves to make the uh, ponds that we are creating now. So rainwater harvesting systems uh, were put across the built-up area as well. And the second part of it was to enrich the soil. Like I mentioned, there was absolutely no nutrition at over uh, utilization of fertilizers and pesticides had made the soil absolutely barren. I mean, it was just, uh, there's nothing there. I mean, we couldn't grow anything on it. So uh, as we were uh, getting into the greening part, we realized that we have to change the soil. So every time we dug out this uh, non-usable soil, we put a layer of black cotton soil, one layer of uh, something called a French technology, polyter which is uh, like small granules, which swell up with, when you give them water and they slowly re-release this water to the plants when they require it. And now we moved into, instead of this polyter, we use charcoal or activated biochar, uh, which is again, charcoal is a very porous, most porous material on earth. And so when you activate it with the right kind of uh, nutrients, we activate it with something called Jeevamrit, which is a combination of uh, cow urine and other plant extracts. And so this provides the nutrition for the plants. Then we have another layer of vermicompost, biocompost, red soil uh, for the carbon. So this was a part of the soil enrichment uh, project. And to green a place very fast, I mean, immediate greening, if you have to notice, we need to do something fast, right? So I can't wait. we couldn't wait for it. And so a rescue mission was undertaken. I mentioned rescue mission because on the other end of the city, we had uh, uh, these 30, 40 year old trees, huge banyan trees that were marked for felling because there was an expansion of the roads. There was a road widening project and they were uh, to be cut down. And our uh, uh, world guide, our uh, Heartfulness guide Kamlesh Patel Daji, he said that, no, we can't let this happen. So we, in fact, rescued these grown trees from the place, packed them. I mean, so the root had to be cut, top of the canopy had to be cut for transportation. and But then after packing, got them to this place. And the survival rate is 95%, which is uh, nothing short of a miracle, because generally these grown trees don't survive well in a new environment. But when I talked to the team that undertook this, they were saying that they require ICU care. That's how they uh, term it as. So three months of ICU care is what they provide where they give it a lot of attention, a lot of love. And three months, the, there is not a single leaf on these trees after coming to the new place, but then they've managed to survive. Along with those uh, trees from the road widening project, we had other coconut trees 1,500 kilometers away, they were marked for felling, so we rescued them. More than 500 trees have been rescued from uh, such uh, widening projects as well as other development, human developmental projects. And uh, they're all doing good here. Coconuts are fruiting. We get more than 250 coconuts per tree now. And it's just been five years since this started. And the second part of it was to make a nursery for the baby plants. If you're talking about greening, getting into making a nursery was very important. So uh, we started with 5.7 acres and uh, managed to grow 600,000 saplings. But now we have a 50 acre nursery, which has 3 million saplings currently uh, available, which uh, 
which focuses on rare endangered and threatened species from India mainly, indigenous and native to this place. So that was the beginning of greening. But here I would also like to mention that, of course, along with, uh, like how you mentioned Alexander, looking at what we are doing to the planet. I mean, so any kind of a greening project, a small step also is, 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 a, is a drop to push this uh, mass movement, mass wave towards mitigating climate change, mitigating global warming. But along with that, our uh, uh, Heartfulness Guide, World Heartfulness Guide had a unique perspective about greening where he mentions that not only are these species doing that, not only are they taking up carbon dioxide, not only are they helping us live better, but they also are like vibrational banks. They take in all the positive vibrations that we provide them and from the atmosphere and they keep it with them, slowly re-releasing it back into the atmosphere so that it benefits us at the end of the day. So, I mean, Buddha or any, any person you see, I mean, if you go and sit under a tree, you feel very relaxed, you feel peaceful. And so uh, this is this was his take on the greening, that we need to make this the world more peaceful by greening it further because these sentient beings, the trees are the ones that are going to help us in elevating our consciousness. So that was the beginning of the forest by heartfulness. I mentioned these uh, techniques for uh, soil enrichment. And we started off as a word of mouth thing with each one, teach one to plant one. Slowly, uh, we conceived of food forests, growing uh, multiple fruiting trees together, millet farms, uh, medicinal garden, and everything that we grew here had to uh, fulfill one of the values is what we looked at. We need to have either an ecological value or a food value, medicinal value, or even just an intrinsic value or just a right to live. So focusing on the native trees, these are some of the native plants which are very beautiful to look at, and yet nobody uh, nobody gives it the importance that it requires, and that is what has pushed them on the brink of extinction. The one in the center with long pink leaves, that is uh, a Garcinia, or uh, a cousin of mangosteen. Yeah, so a bioslimming agent. Yeah, and it's found only in India. It is a narrow endemic species. That particular Garcinia is found only here. This one on top is a peanut butter fruit. Uh, it tastes like peanut butter, actually, if you eat it. It's one of my favorite fruits. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, we have uh, themed gardens. This is a Persian garden. It's not like we only focus on native species. We have this uh, yellow tree on your right. It's the Vietnamese cypress. Um, and it, it's very fragrant and it was discovered quite recently, in fact. And uh, so the structure is, I mean, it, we are trying to get the campus as close to nature as possible. And like I mentioned, it was an effort by a huge team. So from across the world, we had people coming here and helping us with the greening process. Ladies, uh, all walks of life, people from all walks of life enjoyed the sitting with the mud, with the plants and planting them. And uh, after we plant, we sit and have one small prayer that let them do good and let them survive well in the uh, wild. Yeah, so I, I think the next part I will come to in a bit. Yeah, I think I'm done with uh, this, um, Megan. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Anania. So, so wonderful. It's so heartening to see so much uh, growth has happened. Last time I visited Kanha was 2020. I still oh. lots of change since then even. Two years, the pandemic did good to us. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> <It's> true. <almost. laughs> Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. 
let's go to um, um, Antonio. Would you please share about Terra Siege and your other project? What's your purpose in pursuing them? Uh, I, I was concerned, as I said earlier, about what we're doing to, to this planet, on whose health we depend. And um, I had the opportunity to talk to groups occasionally, including one school, an international school here in, in southern Portugal. Um, and when they learned that I was an architect, they implored me to design a school, or at least to produce some sketches for the school, which they then loved and asked me where the school could go. And that obliged me to start exploring the area where this town is, where the school is, uh, in the west or near the west coast of Portugal. And I discovered a valley that I hadn't seen before. And it had some plants there that I had not hadn't noticed. I knew a little about, but I certainly hadn't seen before. And that got me really quite excited because the more I explored that large basin, turns out to be something like 254 square kilometers, um, the more I realized it really was a very special place and deserved to be looked after. And it turns out that it's part of the Natura 2000 network, which is a European system intended to save the more special habitats that still survive in this otherwise rather blighted continent. And um, as I studied that area more, I got to know uh, more about one of the trees in particular, and that's the one that you mentioned earlier. That's the sort of symbol of our of our of our valley, largely because it's the only place remaining in Portugal where there, where there are fairly substantial communities of these magnificent oak trees, Algerian oaks or Merbeck oaks, or as they're called here, Carvalho de Monchique. Um, and that got me started with the idea of trying to organize others to get involved. And fortunately, I found colleagues who are, I think, far more effective than I was. And we were able ultimately to get all the local communities, the three municipalities involved in this basin, and uh, several universities in, in Portugal and other institutions to join as partners in an initiative which has indirectly actually started to plant not on the scale that we just heard from by Anania, but certainly we've planted tens of thousands, in fact, a little over 200,000 trees now in an area that was burnt, thanks to simply the generosity of passengers of Ryanair. They have seen this, this opportunity and we have been able, my colleagues have been able to, to supervise the planting of lots and lots of trees in an area that had been scorched by one of the major fires in the country's south. And this is a big challenge we face because southern Portugal and southern Spain, Iberia, is, is recognized by the IPCC as highly vulnerable to desertification. And we're seeing it now. That's why earlier on I celebrated the fact that today we have some rain, which is not normal for this time of the year, but still most welcome. Um, what else can I say? Well, simply that, that this project took off to some extent. It still has a long, long way to go. But our great hope is that as we become increasingly aware of and concerned about what we are doing to what's left of this planet, we may finally get the sort of support on the scale that we need from, for example, initiatives like the Green Deal in Brussels in order to do what is needed here and in order to make sure that areas that are supposedly protected as they are meant to be under the uh, Natura 2000 legislation are indeed protected and guarded as vestiges of a much richer past. Thank you very much. Um, very, very inspiring and interesting uh, project you're having there. Alexander, would you please share about Refugio Tinti with our audience? What do you do in Refugio Tinti and what's your mission in this project? 
Yes, well, when I'm listening to um, Antonio to Ananya, I mean, these are gigantic projects and I feel I have just a little garden here. <laughs> However, uh, the refugio is located on the property of 24 hectares, about 60 acres, and uh, it's next to a national park. When I bought it, 2016, it was a heavily degraded swamp, toxic from industrial rice growing and then overgrazed and compacted by cattle herds, basically a dead land. Unfortunately, I don't have pictures with me now. Um, but that was exactly what I was looking for. And uh, I wanted to find out what it takes to regenerate such an abused piece of land and how long it may take. And to my surprise, through our interventions, after five years now, it became a haven for wildlife with a biodiversity on all levels that is increasing by the days. In our camera traps, we regularly find now pumas, ocelots, jaguarundis, all these cat species, they are already on the brink of extinction. And we are incredibly happy that we are obviously able to contribute a little bit to their recovery. Um, our objectives in the refugio are essentially twofold. Uh, on the one hand, it's maintaining the recovery we have set in motion here and um, here on our land. And um, on the other hand, it's raising money for currently three different projects that should take our experiences beyond our borders. And that is to implement a permacultural education center, which we will place into the school of our community to reach the future generation. And uh, the second project is to diversify palm oil monocultures. Uh, we we uh, developed uh, a concept how to diversify um, monocultures into that also counts for uh, pastures, cattle pastures, for example, uh, to diversify them into profitable polycultures. And uh, a pilot project will start next month. And uh, the third project is buying up and reforesting wastelands within an ambitious government project that aims to connect two national parks through a so-called biological corridor. There are 50,000 hectares to, um, to uh, reforest and to regenerate. And um, so we are tiny, but we are a part of that. Wow, that's lots, lots going on in your Refugio Tinti and lots coming in future. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. Now, my next question is to all of you. How do you see the situation regarding our environment and where we are standing in our collective awareness about it? Um, little bit, you know, um, illustrating uh, where we are standing and probably we can merge it actually, if you wish, with the next question that what are some of the solutions to this question, if you find suitable, otherwise we can, we can deal with the two questions separately. So should we, um, uh, Ananya, would you like to start? Sure, sure. Um, I mean, because I, I didn't finish exactly uh, what I wanted to share as well, and, but I want to keep it uh, within the time frame. So um, let me see if I can. Yeah, so I feel that this, this awareness, it's, it's high time that we get into uh, 
realizing that we are at an we are in an era of six mass extinction of species and what it, this essentially means is that we are losing one species every 3 hours from the face of this planet and that being the case we have i mean it was so heartening to hear alexander talk about how these uh, endangered felines are getting a new lease of life in uh, your project and but uh, about trees, we don't give as much focus to it. And so here at Kana Shanti Vanam, we have tried to uh, conserve and uh, make this an exit conservation center for rare and endangered uh, tree species. These are some of the critically endangered tree species from the uh, dry deciduous forests. And we also have managed to grow rainforests in this blazing hot environment. And how we managed to do that was um, Antonio, you were mentioning the Miyawaki style and your question as to how we can help. Uh, so we have come up with something called the uh, forest by heartfulness high density plantation, which uh, I would say is a step better than Miyawaki because we are talking about growing, letting each species take its space and grow and yet making it a high density uh, forest. So with Miyawaki, uh, the placement is very important and what is coming next to what species is not mentioned. So at, here at Forest by Heartfulness, we are trying to tell people, anybody who's interested in uh, greening, that you need to make it look dense, but you need to give each species its own space to grow as well. So uh, companion plants are very important. Growing these uh, rainforest species was only possible because of growing the companion plants, which fix nitrogen in the soil and provide shade to this uh, shade loving rainforest species and with that we have managed to conserve endangered trees so why we are getting into uh, any of these um, uh, you know huge greening projects and that to getting rainforest species here in a dry area was mainly to conserve and give a new lease to this lease of life to this uh, endangered species some of them are critically endangered, meaning that in the coming 20 years, we might not even have a single tree in the wild. And this particular uh, jamun, a fruit, a berry, uh, it's, it's so narrow endemic and critically endangered that they have enumerated 25 individual trees in the wild. And that's it, no more. And uh, on campus now, we have 50 individual trees and some of them are fruiting. This, like I mentioned, is the Garcinia. Um, this is how the rainforest suite looks like. Now, if you recollect the first picture that I showed you of the barren land, that area has been converted into this right now. And this has been the past five or six years. And if what I'm trying to show here is that if this is possible, of course, it has been a tremendous effort by a large number of people and all of them are volunteers. But at the same time, if this is possible, if this change, if this restoration is possible in such a uh, terrible land. I think anybody with the will, anybody wanting to make a difference can make it happen. And Alexander and Antonio are other examples of how we can do this as individuals as well. Yes, increase in biodiversity was uh, one of the first things we noticed as well. There was not even a crow in sight, but now we have small mammals. The one on the right is a rescued black-naped hare. I had it at home for three months and then we released it into the wild. Then we have monitored lizards, we have mongooses, we have 80 species of birds that I have enumerated and 36 species of butterflies. Yeah, so this is Kana Shantivanam. So 
like I said, uh, to answer your question, uh, Negin, I think it is high time that awareness comes in and not just awareness, we are beyond awareness. It, it is time to act. And so individually, if we can take inspiration from people like Alexander, Antonio, and many more such inspiring projects and get in, involved in some way or the other into doing something for the planet, I think we still have a chance. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I would uh, like to hear also from Antonio and then Alexander. Um, it may be just as well that I go before, before uh, I just feel that I, my perspective is rather gloomier than Ananya's and Alexander's. Um, granted, I have seen lots of examples such as those inspiring ones that Ananya has just described, but I don't think we should foster any hubris about what we can do uh, to our planet and what we cannot do. Um, there are parts of the world which can be so damaged that, and that includes Portugal and that includes the Amazon, that they are essentially irreversible unless you spend a fortune. Um, the soils, lateritic soils in the Amazon, for example, can get baked so hard that they are essentially almost lifeless thereafter. What little nutrients they have are washed away in torrential tropical rains, and eventually you have what I have seen in southern uh, Brazil, in southern Venezuela, near the Brazilian border, land that is baked hard and only has some very hardy grasses growing in it and nothing more. We have a similar situation in Portugal in which within even these protected areas, so-called protected areas of the Natura network, we have industrial plantations of the exotic eucalyptus which is terraced because of the, the slopes, uh, the land is sloping, it is terraced so that the trees can be planted. This huge erosion, these trees are really thirsty and they can cause very big, severe damage. I have colleagues that suspect that it may not be possible to restore those areas, at least to the richness that they had before. That said, I completely agree with what Ananya is saying that by and large, with perseverance and with knowledge, we can actually restore a hell of a lot. Uh, we are very lucky that that is the case because the scale on which we are harming our planet is such that it is quite remarkable. It's miraculous that we can do undo that damage. Um, what is critical, I feel here, is that we raise awareness, uh, that we get people involved from their hearts, that special part of our brain which actually drives so much, so many of our activities, and start to do what we can, each one of us, to make, to leave less of an impact, and ideally, actually to contribute rather than destroy where we have been. Very well said, Antonio. Thank you very much. Alexander? Well... My assessment is uh, similar gloomy, actually. <laughs> I'm afraid with that continuous public uh, complacency and ignorance and inaction, by now we are on, in a dire situation with the environment. And uh, actually, we are in a state of outright emergency. We are on the brink of our own extinction. The rapidly growing wildfires and floods, the increasingly extreme and frequent weather events, the mass die-off of insect populations and the dwindling biodiversity in general, all are signs of a situation so serious that it requires immediate action. But the biggest problem I see is that not only the so-called uneducated masses, but also and especially our academics, politicians and business leaders who are supposed to know better still seem, still seem to be 
completely unaware of the urgency of our situation, even in the face of all these increasingly obvious and alarming signs. So back to your question, our awareness about the state of our, our environment still seems to be virtually zero, and that's very dangerous. And um, But to offer a solution, um, of course, above all, I think it's education. Uh, when we are clearly aware that and how we are harming ourselves, I think there's a good chance that we are abstaining from a lot of our self-destructive behavior. So we need to educate ourselves. We need to understand, firstly, the urgency. We must understand that the breakdown of our environment doesn't happen gradually, but rather like the aforementioned exploding balloon. And we must understand that this can happen now any moment. And then we must understand that what got us, us into this situation. It's because we have wrecked our ecosystems. We have interrupted virtually all natural self-regenerating cycles, like clean air, clean water, soil fertility, and waste management. We have to understand that all this can only be provided by a functioning ecosystem. Our technologies are not capable to save us. Oxygen masks don't clean up the air. Water purifiers cannot clean up our oceans. Air conditioners cannot stop global warming. And while synthetic fertilizers have provided high harvests for a few decades, they kill soil life to such an extent that erosion leaves us, meanwhile, with less than 55 harvests. Then all our soil is buried in rivers and the ocean, and, and we are left with naked rocks, where, of course, nothing is going to grow anymore. But what is going to fix us, uh, to fix the, 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 the thing, are the ecosystems. We have to revamp our education system by making ecology a central part of every education and from early on. And we have to change our economy models from unlimited material growth to circular models that focus on unlimited growth in quality instead of quantity. Waste, no matter how small, must have no place in our production or consumption systems. And last but not least, we have to refuse our destructive agrochemical-intensive fossil-fuel-dependent food production, even when organic food is more expensive. So we know what we have to do, but we have to do it. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, thank you each and every one of you for sharing your journey, your knowledge, and your precious experience with us. If any of our audience are inspired to know more about our panelists, the slide I'm going to share shows how you can connect with them. And you can easily take a snapshot if you're following us on a cell phone or take a print screen if you're at your desktop. In the meanwhile, I just uh, wanted to add on to, I mean, Alexander, the, the passion with which you conveyed the, uh, what you have seen. I mean, both of you have dedicated major parts of your lives to uh, doing something about the uh, uh, deteriorating state of the planet. And uh, to see the frustration in, in, in your uh, voice, I mean, it's, it's just so, I don't know. I mean, I, being from the 
next generation i'm sure for years on end you have been seeing the data scientific data you're you're seeing it happen in front of your eyes and still if the government if the if the general public is not waking up to it i'm i'm sure it must be like it it, it i can feel the frustration coming through to me you know i mean Absolutely. i really hope that this this session would be a one such wake up call to everybody who's tuned in Yeah, yeah. by the way, this pic, beautiful picture in the background is a picture of Refugio Tinti. That looked about as um, as the first picture from Ananya five years ago. It was empty. It was dead. <laughs> exactly. But you made it like that. Exactly. So this brings us to a very brief time for our Q and A. Um, we have uh, like five minutes to address some of the questions we have received. Um, okay, my first question is, do you think the currently much hyped hydroponics and vertical agriculture is a solution for our food production? Well, if I may, I would love to answer that. Please. Um, hydroponics and vert vertical agriculture, in my opinion, have no place in the food industry. Food is an extremely complex issue, and our understanding of its impact on our body, especially on our immune system and possible long-term effects, is still very limited. So what the food does to our bodies that is grown under artificial LED lamps in purified water and enriched with a few synthetic vitamins and minerals versus of growing it in local, mineral-rich, natural soil full of complex microlife and micronutrients with rainwater and under natural sunlight, um, we simply don't know what the difference is <laughs> in a scientific mm. way. However, where I do see a big potential for vertical farming and hydroponics, and I think that's very exciting, is the sector of non-food producing agriculture, such as fabric industry, cotton, linen, hemp, soy, and so on. They all could be grown with these new technologies. They could be moved into high risers in combination with fashion industries. They can be grown in any climate, which would eliminate a lot of polluting transport. One could grow them with chemical fertilizers and even GMO. So even Monsanto could contribute to something that's eventually not destructive. And as an exciting side effect, the millions of square miles currently used to grow these products could be used for more organic food production and large areas could even be returned to the much needed wilderness to save our remaining biodiversity. Excellent. Wow, <laughs> that's great. Okay, our next question is, why did you grow rainforest species in Kanha Shantivanam? Uh, Ananya, would you like to talk to that? Okay, yeah, no, I'm, um, like I mentioned, it's, it's now become a conservation center. So the prime focus was on conservation, even though uh, restoring would mean that we had to grow dry deciduous tree species. But when you're looking at conservation aspect of things, uh, most of these species are going extinct from the rainforest because of the um, land use changes, as well as like um, Antonio mentioned, the invasion of uh, alien species, you know, alien invasive species. That's one of the, that's the second most uh, devastating effect uh, because of which the uh, plants are going extinct. So trying to conserve them was the uh, prime aspect, of, uh, prime aim of having rainforests here. Mm, very good point. Thank you very much. 
Another question is, um, could you please um, tell us a little bit about the symbol of your project in Portugal? The tree that perhaps most inspired me is uh, the second largest native tree in Portugal, reached up to 30 meters or more. Um, like all oaks, it's magnificent, at least all large oaks, there are some quite small ones. Um, but it um, is a tree that many other species depend upon. It has, for example, uh, a, a production of acorns occasionally, sporadically, and this is an issue that we can address later, perhaps. Um, and it um, is one of the elements that contributes perhaps most to the biodiversity of what used to be here orig originally. Um, so the, the logo that we, we chose is ultimately based on the leaf of this tree, the undulating leaf of, of the, the Merbeck oak, um, with the fact that there's a Seishi River which runs through this basin, and there are hills uh, around that have the same undulation of the edge of the leaf, as well as the, the, the bends in the river. So they're all put together in, in, one, in one symbol. Beautiful. So um, one last question that if you would like to briefly uh, address is, what is the one thing you recommend each person do today to help our planet? Is that to me? to anybody who would like to address that. Uh, that's a, that's I think, and I feel that the others have suggested as much as well, that although we are, I think, all three of us, very concerned about doing concrete things, not wishful thinking, not paying homage, not uh, homilies, pious thoughts, uh, but actual actions, I think they must be preceded by an awareness that as Alexander, indicated earlier, very few of us have. Um, I would go further. I think it's more than an awareness. We need a passion there. And I feel that much of society has lost that passion. It lost it in its childhood. And I think we have to revive it. We have to instill a recognition that what surrounds us, at least what surrounds me, you in Ontario may have something, a very different landscape around you, um, is vital to our survival, as Alexander made so eminently clear earlier. And, and the sooner we grasp that, I think the better we, we may actually overcome the severe challenges that we face. Thank you. Thank you, the just three of you, for your time. Thing. And they, I, it, we are at the end of, sorry, it just cuts it. So thank you, all of you who come along from all over the globe. We are grateful for your participation and interest. And stay in touch. Bye. Thank you again. Bye. Thank you, Alexander. Bye, Antonio.